So have you ever had a friend? I'll stop there. <laughs> have you ever had a friend that has like, not not like a speech impediment, but just like certain words get pronounced in insane ways? I can't help but feel like you're talking about me. <laughs> <laughs> I had a friend. I was just thinking about this because I had a bagel for, let's call it lunch. And a friend of mine, when I was growing up, was this girl, and she pronounced it bagel. Bagel? Like B-E-G-G-L-E. Let's go to Manhattan and have a bagel. Okay. And I would look at her like I didn't know what species she was. It was not anything else. Like, I respect the fact that I... You know, come from New Jersey and we say things weird, but no one says bagel. I mean, obviously someone does. Might be a <laughs> might be a population of one. Yeah. I okay. I, I'll give you that. Sam says bagel, but good God. I've heard bagel. I've heard that, but only like ironically. You would think, but have you ever noticed that some ironic ways of pronouncing things turned into the actual way that people pronounce things because the joke is lost and that's just now how you say it. I literally don't know what you mean. <laughs> well, maybe I'll try to be more figurative about it. <laughs> yeah, it anyway, that was my fun bagel story for the morning. <clears throat> I, I think we should do that every morning. Just bagels with, uh, I'm sorry, bagels with Chris. Yeah. I yeah, I could make that into a that could be my TikTok universe. You know, I've been thinking about it, and you and I, we do bits sometimes. What? <laughs> How dare you, sir? <laughs> I dare, and I will. <laughs> and I'm thinking, what is TikTok really? But people doing little bits, and I've seen what's on there. You don't have to be particularly attractive or all that good at cameras? So or far, lighting? this is lining up really well for me. <laughs> and somehow, it has immense reach and power. So I'm thinking of enlisting my dog and my cat to be on TikTok. Which one will be the tick and which one will be the talk? I mean, obviously, the dog is the talk. Yeah. Yeah, that tracks. Yeah. <laughs> the cat's going to want to be first. <laughs> Have you met a cat? Yes. But only only if the dog wants it. <laughs> Reasonable. Yes. Reasonable take. I like it. All right. All right. Uh, but, you know, failing that, if they, if they won't get on board, then I guess we could start a TikTok thing. All right. But I'm not dressing like a dog. Again. Again. Oh, hello, alleged human, and welcome to the Chaos Lover Podcast. My name is Ned, and I'm definitely not a robot. I mean, who would want to be a robot anyway with our, I mean, um, their limitless upgradability and essentially infinite lifespans? You know, who wouldn't prefer having squishy bits and breakable essential parts like knees and backs that just, like, collapse like a flan in a cupboard with absolutely no warning? Sounds good to me. Speaking of squishy humans, with me is Chris, who is also here. Hi, Chris. So, yeah. It turns out being old is stupid. <laughs> I don't know what you mean. I got out of bed the other day, and like everyone that gets out of bed, I did something crazy. I stood up. Ooh, bad stuff. And in doing that, I sprained my ankle. <laughs> I'm laughing in sympathy and not at you. <laughs> and it's just like, why? Like, what's happening? What are we doing here? <laughs> I have found that, like, most of my major injuries over the last five years occurred in totally, like, what should be benign and bland ways. Like, walking across the room, going upstairs, exiting my vehicle. <laughs> my uncle blew out his ACL stepping up a step onto somebody's patio sounds accurate yeah like not working not horseplay just he stepped up then he was on the ground and we thought it was funny and then it wasn't funny 
and he didn't have an ACL anymore. And then it was funny again. <laughs> no? Humanity! Woo! <laughs> We're very breakable. <laughs> now I've really enjoyed how the older I get, every morning is just a cornucopia of surprises. And I like to play the big, the game of what hurts today and will not hurt tomorrow. <laughs> it's just a mystery phantom pain that visits different parts of my body every day. Yeah, and the funny part about it is even doctors are aware that this happens. You go into the doctor and you're like, my elbow hurts. And the doctor looks at you and goes, okay. <laughs> That's it. There's no follow-up. No, no, no. <laughs> no, no, no. They, they look at you and go. No, it's just going to hurt and, for a while. Uh, how old are you? Yeah. That's not important. That, that just, we you we know, don't need to bring detailed statistics into this. As someone who recently turned 45 and went to my annual physical for the first time in five years, <laughs> that should be another name for it, really. Uh, yeah, the questions have changed <laughs> significantly. And now I need to get... Uh, some parts of me inspected that I don't really want to get inspected. And we'll leave it at that. Yeah. Every single male in our listening audience just went, oh, God. Yeah. We all clenched collectively. <laughs> so oh, you're welcome. <laughs> not <sighs> prostate, probate. <laughs> That's not better. No, no. It's a joke from Who Framed Roger Rabbit that I did not get until years later. Those are the best kinds of jokes. And that's one of the reasons that that movie is an absolute all-time classic. Oh, a complete delight. Whatever you're doing, stop and go watch it. That and Into the Spider-Verse, and you'll just have a great day. That, and then, you know, you finish up the trifecta with the Mario Brothers movie. Um, win, win, win. I would also accept UHF. <laughs> yeah, but that's like a real recommendation. Oh, were we not I really recommending things? Because all that seemed earnest. Have you seen the Mario Brothers movie? <laughs> yes, it's delightful for all the wrong reasons. <laughs> Haven't we talked about who else could have been Bowser besides Dennis Hopper? Or was that? No, that was a different conversation. We were trying to figure out who could have played some other actor. And I said, well, it could be Dennis Hopper. And you helpfully pointed out that he's dead. Yeah, I mean, I feel like that's important for like future scheduling. Yeah. Is to check whether or not the talent... <laughs> Is breathing. Is it too late to stop Chris Pratt? I think you and I both know it is. I thought maybe you as a fellow Chris had an in there. where you'd be like, listen, you don't have to be in all the movies. Yeah. I mean, the problem is at the club, you only get one vote. Ah, you already used you know? your vote with Christian Bale, didn't you? Well, at least he stopped the Batman stuff, so I guess we can all be thankful. Instead, moved over to the MCU, but hey, we've got a show to talk about. Let's talk about some tech garbage. Oh, that's what we do, right? <laughs> now, let's just vamp for another four and a half minutes. I'm sure our <laughs> listeners will love it, all 12 of them. Can do. <laughs> no, I thought it would be finally time to actually do a little deep dive on this thing called CXL. You might have heard of it. It's somewhat familiar to me, yes. What is it good for? Well, quite quite a bit, actually. Oh, oh, oh. okay. That's not where I thought, okay. Continue. <laughs> no, it's the opposite of that other song. Ah. But that one does have a better, like, bass line. I mean, and, you know, another one bites the dust. And we're sued. <laughs> So, we've teased it a few times. CXL is a technology that is coming down the pipe that is very big in potential, hasn't really seen worldwide anything. Mm -hmm. And we'll talk about some products that actually exist at the end of this. But what it's got going for it and what it can potentially do for the data center is... What's the word I'm looking for? Revolutionary. If all this, if all the promise is met, it's going to be in a whole new world. A new fantastic point of view. 
There we are. Thank uh, you very much. You're welcome. So that's why I'm here. At the last Tech Field Day that I was at in San Jose last month, mm-hmm. we did a entire day at the Open Compute Project CXL Forum. So I can't remember exactly. I want to say there was like 15 uh, presentations. Wow. So we saw CXL from a whole bunch of different perspectives. And we got to see it from people like Meta, people like Samsung that actually have running operations of CXL. So it was not just philosophy. Okay. So let's start with what OCP actually is. Okay. I've, I've heard of it before. I I feel like the last time I was aware of it, it was because they had mer- or they had brought in a project that was called like Open 19. That right. was all about standardizing racks in an open source way. Um, and that got merged into Open Compute because that's sort of what Open Compute was trying to do was just like have open source hardware to or to a certain degree. Open source everything, yes. Um, Microsoft, not a fan, but everybody else pretty into it. The idea is exactly that. If you have open standards and if you have collaboration across companies, things will be easier, more efficient, and that is not something that has really happened in the hardware space nearly as much as it has in the software space. Because if you talk about open source, what people immediately think is free software, which not technically, but it's never really been a thing in hardware. And that's what OCP is trying to do. I think you're down with OCP. Yeah, you know me. If I know you. You might. Anyway, they have a couple of events, two big ones, uh, once every six months. The one that we are talking about was the Global Summit, which was held October 18th to the 20th in 2022 in beautiful San Jose, California. And it actually was pretty nice, if I'm being honest. Hmm. Uh, This might be controversial, but I feel like the weather in California is real good. I've never heard that before. I know. I know. It's like one of my original takes. Okay. So the OCP themselves is much more than just CXL, but they made CXL a feature of one of their days. Um, If you want to see some of the other things that went on, I highly encourage you to click through. um, A lot of their recordings are already up. You can see some of the demonstrations and some of the presentations online. One of the things that was really cool that was both fascinating and terrifying to me was an open source hardware solution to liquid cool servers. Yep. I've seen proprietary versions of that in the past, but only at expo floors. (laughs) Right. I, for one, would be terrified to do it in my own data center, but it is fascinating to see it in person. Like walking the expo, you literally was like, I was literally like, that's a fish tank. There's a computer in it. Mm -hmm. And everyone's sort of fine with that. I mean, it, it just points to the fact that water is not a particularly good conductor. Right. And if you're trying to conduct heat away from the components in your computer, why not submerge it in a medium that is much better at conducting things? Correct. Yeah. So what water is good at conducting is electricity. And you don't want that. No, no. <laughs> so you have to find a medium that's good at conducting heat, but not electricity. So, like I said, they featured CXL for an entire day, but really it was all over the place because one of the things about the CXL uh, platform, uh, whatever you want to call it, is that it has got a lot of attention. Mm. Every company that you can think of that makes something inside of a frame of a server is involved with CXL. So we're talking Intel Obviously, we're talking Samsung, we're talking Micron, uh, we're talking Ramjet, we're talking a whole bunch of Marvel or Marvel, not Marvel, the movie theater people. The The chip makers, yeah. Dozens and dozens and dozens of major manufacturers are involved. But let's take a step back to try to describe what the purpose of CXL is, and let's talk about how devices talk to each other in a regular system. How does a CPU 
talk to memory? That's a really good question. I hope you can tell me. <laughs> the answer is politely. <laughs> no, the answer is you have on the motherboard a physical CPU, usually two. And off of that motherboard connection, there are physical paths that go to the banks of memory. Ordinarily, there's a set limit to those numbers. Mm -hmm. um, for example, the more recent version of the, what was it called? The Zen, yeah, the Zen 4 Epic chip from AMD had 12 channels that were addressable to memory. Here's the problem with that. Regardless of how fast those channels are, and they are quite fast, there's still only 12 of them. Right. What are you going to do if your processor has, I don't know, 32 cores? <laughs> That's uh, Now, if I'm doing my math correctly, um, that is less paths than there are cores. Right. Hmm. This is a problem, and it's actually a problem that is highlighted by a lot of vendors, which is the power and capability of CPUs is just exploding. But the amount of ability to communicate with the RAM has stayed stagnant. And it's actually going to get worse because when DDR5 comes out, it has the advantage of being almost 50% faster than DDR4. Motherboards that are going to come out will have half the channels. Because? Because it's cheaper that way. Uh -huh. No, the argument is most workloads simply don't need instant access all the time. The RAM doubling in speed is going to be good enough. I see. So I can do less channels and just put bigger chips in each of those channels. Bigger, faster chips. Bigger, faster chips, and that'll make up the difference. Right. That's the theory. And we do have to make clear, we are talking about edge cases here, because most of the time, that is probably correct. Right. right. When you're talking about, like, Amazon, that might not be correct. But netinthecloud.com, I think, is going to be all right. I barely need one channel. <laughs> so those are the channels from the CPU directly to memory. There are plenty of other channels in the computer that go to the expansion cards, the most common of which is PCIe or PCI Express. Mm -hmm. And that allows your system to talk to whatever you plug into it, your sound card, your GPU, do you think we have any listeners that are old enough to remember when those were separate devices? Maybe? The connection there is a piece of physical hardware that you literally plug into a slot, and it communicates over a different channel. So the goal and the, the, the message of CXL is let's use that channel, but for everything. Now, that channel... In order for the CPU to talk to it, is it going through some sort of chip that sits between the CPU and the PCI bus? It does, but only in the sense of, of passing traffic. The CPU has to be fluent enough to talk whatever that protocol is. So CPUs know how to talk PCIe. Okay, so that chip that sits there is not uh, doing any routing or decision. It's just making sure that things flow both ways. It's a switch, not a router. Yes. Right. Maybe even a, well, I guess more of a switch than a hub. Mm, you're right. It's a hub. Okay. So we're, yeah. And that's actually, that's, that's an important distinction to make. And I'm glad you, you called it out because that's where we, when we talk about what is coming up with CXL, CXL is actually going to introduce routing capabilities. Mm. But at the moment, it's much more simple communication okay. inside the frame type of things. Now, I'd assume that the speed of PCIe channels, the bandwidth that's available, is less than the channels that go to DRAM. Correct. And we'll talk about that when I, when I go through the, the 1.1, 2.0, 3.0. But in general, 
it's not necessarily about the absolute blazing fast capability, but it's more about making more memory on the near line accessible to the CPU. Mm. So you'll still always have chips on motherboards that connect directly to the CPU. Right. That's not going away. What CXL allows is additional memory to be kind of a tier two or a tier 1.5, depending on how it ends up being worked out, which is still good. And it's still advantageous to certain workloads. Right. Okay. Now, CXL itself. What CXL does is use that channel, that PCIe channel, as a path to any device you can possibly think of. So you add a device to a PCIe channel, it uses the CXL protocol, it communicates to the CPU directly, and you have the ability to add things like huge banks of RAM, or a GPU, or a NIC, or whatever device you can think of. What it wants to do is just make that additional communication possible. So it's a protocol that rides PCIe. When you talk about the devices that you would connect over CXL, there are three kinds. Type one is defined as a caching device slash accelerator. This is a simple device. So this is a NIC or this is a GPU or it's a sound card or whatever. Then there's type three, which is purely RAM. It can be, I'm sorry, it's purely storage. It can be RAM and usually is RAM in these examples, but it could be physical memory. It could be some type of an SSD collection or mm -hmm. solution. It's gonna be interesting to see how that develops over time, but really that's the difference. One is a device, type one is a device or an accelerator, and type three is memory of some kind. And then type two in the middle is a bit of both, an okay. accelerator that has memory on board. Okay. Got all that? Yeah. 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 Okay. That's, I, I got, there's three different kinds of devices we're talking about here. And I guess my question would be, and I don't know, I don't know, if, I don't know if you know the answer to this. What was the protocol being used previously for like a CPU to talk to a NIC that was on the PCI bus? So it would talk natively directly to the NIC over the PCIe. Okay. The advantage here is that communication is established and is standard, right? PCI, we're on version five of PCIe. So it's been around for a while. Right. CXL wants to kind of add features on top of that. I see. Okay. And, and more capability, functionality, however you want to phrase it. So the idea was you would plug a dumb card into a PCIe slot and you would have that accessibility. That's great. And that's super helpful. That was never meant to make a memory conversation happen between CPU and that card, for example. And then as you know, I'm, I'm hiding the, the, the end goal here, but if you have that abstraction on top of PCIe and you have some type of an external switch, now you get into the potential of sharing that memory with other systems in a rack or in a data center. That intelligence was never built into PCIe. And, and not like, limited to just banks of memory either. No, no, no. I, I, I am definitely saying memory a lot. And one of the reasons for that is that that has been a driving force to get people excited about CXL. But you're absolutely right. It really is any device that you can think of. Mm-hmm could be attached via PCIe and shared over CXL. Okay. All right. So let's talk about the different things that CXL can do. You've kind of hinted at them, but let, let's dig deeper into what, what the standard actually allows for. Right. And that's a good point in that there are standards that exist and they have evolved over time. There was a CXL 1.0 that was very quickly uh, supplanted by 1.1. And that covers device connectivity inside the server. Okay, so all the stuff I was talking about, you abstract PCIe, you can connect whatever you want to. Most of the time, what people are showing off is connecting huge amounts of RAM. 
you can use the CXL protocol over the bus. And what happens is it shows up as a NUMA node with no CPU. Huh. Okay. All right. So remember when we, when we were talking at the beginning, you've got 12 channels from one CPU to memory. Mm-hmm. That makes up a NUMA node, right? That's, the idea is that memory should talk to that CPU because it's the most fast possible. Right. You can cross the NUMA barrier from that CPU and talk to the other RAM, but there's a performance penalty. It's not huge, but when you're talking about like virtualization design, you really want to know how do I make my virtual machines fit into this envelope as closely as possible so that I don't accidentally cross the NUMA barrier. Right. Intel introduced, what was it, uh, QPI to right. connect the two CPUs to accelerate the connection across that NUMA boundary. Uh, but this would be not crossing that QPI or whatever AMD's version of that was. This is going to be instead going out to the PCI eBus. Correct. But remember, the whole goal here is extensibility. Right. One of the things that you can do with a 1.1 device is add in as much memory as you can afford, basically. And in some cases, way more than the system hardware can provide. Mm-hmm. So for example, let's say you've got a server that's got one terabyte as a hard limit on the memory. And I don't know, you're running SAP HANA or something like that where memory is a priority. Right. You install one of these type three devices on CXL, you can get that up to four terabytes of memory. <laughs> and the only penalty is effectively the jump across NUMA nodes. Right. So is it as fast as the native memory? It's not. But it's probably fast enough to help. And I mean, that's sort of the whole point of an in-memory database is that you're not paying the penalty to go to slower disk. Right. And this is going to be faster than any SSD. By orders of magnitude. I'll take three. (laughs) (laughs) So that's 1.1. Okay. 1.1 is in the frame. 2.0 introduces the ability to do single level switching outside of the frame of an installed server. So now we start to get into the idea where different devices can be set up just effectively as memory that can be assigned and then taken away when it's no longer needed. So This is where it stops being a regular server that's got enhancements, and it starts changing how we think about server design and data center design. Sure. Because what you will end up with is you can buy a machine, CXL 2.0 compatible, that is literally, I don't know, let's make up a number, 32 terabytes of RAM. (laughs) You connect that to a CXL switch to X amount of hosts, and you can dynamically define which hosts get access to what memory. Right. I mean, when you think about the way that we design servers today, we have to A, plan for worst case scenario. So, you know, the maximum amount of workload that this single physical server is going to have. And there's certain attributes of that physical server that cannot be farmed out to other things. Like storage, we can farm out. We've got storage arrays and, you know, sands to, to carry the bits. Uh, but memory... Until uh, this CXL2, that was something that was built into that server. It's not something you could farm out. Same thing with like a GPU. You can't farm that out. Same thing with a NIC. You can't farm out a NIC. And then people are like, well, why would you farm out a NIC? But there, there are use cases, I'm sure. This changes that. Now the only thing that's really, you know, makes that server a server is the presence of a CPU. Correct. Yeah, and hold that thought after we discuss 3.0 because I really think that's where it is a game changer in the way that we will think about workloads and servers going forward is going to be completely and irrevocably changed. When we get to CXL 3.0, the biggest thing that happens is that it uses PCIe 6. That is double the bandwidth of PCIe 5 which is already bonkers. Like <laughs> the amount of bandwidth we're talking about is insane. It's 35 uh, is what 32 um, 32 yes. Terra flops or whatever. Yep. And <laughs> 6.0 is 64. Right. 7 is going to double it again, I believe. 
I think that's right. Though that's like not even a ratified spec at this point. <laughs> right. The other thing that's going to happen is multi-level switching and the model of a full fabric of CXL mm. becomes possible in 3.0. Huh. So now you're talking about not just within a rack, but you're talking about across an entire data center, or if you're a complete lunatic, across sites. And we know I am. We, we, we do. I mean, one of the things that you can do when it comes to that type of thing as a hypothetical is instant high availability that would survive a catastrophic failure. Because let's say you have a connection, you're in East Coast and your data center uh, disaster recovery is in Tennessee. I don't know. If you have 3.0 across the network, across the internet or dark fiber or whatever, you could conceivably have a copy of the system memory running in both places so that if you had a catastrophic failure, that system would stay alive. This is the same idea that VMware does with fault tolerance, except stretched over CXL to an indefinite distance. Interesting. Now, I mean, that gets into lots of questions around synchronous versus asynchronous and the performance penalty you would pay if it were a certain distance away and all that kind of jazz. But that's the same sort of challenges we dealt with with synchronous replication between storage arrays. Right. Yeah. And like I said, we're talking about edge cases on top of edge cases, but it's interesting to think about. One of the examples that they talked about at the uh, CXL forum was snap, what are they called? Spot instances, spot instances sure. in the cloud, mm -hmm. right? So if you use a spot instance, you only have access to it until somebody else who's paying more money decides they're going to use it. Right, right. They want to pay the on-demand rate. And so right. AWS or, or Azure, whatever goes, you have five minutes to get all your stuff off of the server. <laughs> so think about a world of CXL though. You have five minutes to get off the server. Okay, copy paste. Or Okay, move over to a new snap, uh, spot image. Why do I keep wanting to call it a snap image? Well, you're taking a snap of the memory, essentially. Yeah, effectively, yeah. Holding on to that copy of memory and then warm booting a new machine and loading that memory in. And yeah. now you're exactly where you were before in your process. You don't have to start from scratch. And that's especially important with anything having to do with uh, like really long-form computation where... Losing what's in memory means you have to start from the beginning. And these runs sometimes take hours or days to complete. Right. So you find a way to keep that alive and you still have the advantage of the cost savings of using spot instances. Right. Which I mean, of course, the clouds are going to get wise to and start charging you more for spot instances. But No, they'll just keep charging you for I.O. Well, yeah, they'll they'll do that, and they'll keep charging you for egress. So, <laughs> <laughs> so in order to make that happen, another thing that happens is the header size of the CXL packet jumps up to 256 bits, which is almost four times larger than it is in the other versions. And if you think about it, it makes sense because we're asking the protocol to do more. It's going to need a larger envelope. Right. Right. Pros and cons, right? The downside of this, going from 1.1 to 2 to 3, you're getting more features, but you're losing latency at every step. Or you're adding still, latency. Still, though, faster than SSD. Yes. And that's kind of, that's what we're targeting here to a certain degree. So I think of other, because we've been talking about the memory use case, right? And that's that's the fast, shiny one that people are excited about. But I'm thinking of other use cases that, are really useful from a virtualization perspective. Uh, for instance, the dynamic allocation of GPUs. Right. I don't need to make sure that my VM lands on a, on a hypervisor that has the GPU installed locally. No, no, no. I can land it on any machine that is in this CXL fabric that has access to my tray of GPUs. And I can even move that virtual machine from one physical host to another and keep it attached to that GPU the whole time. Right. Same thing with network interfaces. And this is kind of like, I'm, I'm thinking out loud here, but I'm just trying to figure out how this would work. My CPU can now essentially do things like direct memory access across the network, which is possible today, but it's a pain. 
Now it can right. do direct memory access across uh, the PCI bus, the extended and enhanced PCI bus. So I don't necessarily need to use typical network protocols to communicate to other nodes that's in my PCI fabric. I can leverage CXL for that. I only need to hit the network stack when I need to leave this PCI fabric to talk to a system that's outside of it. And in that case, I can have a bank of really awesome NICs that are capable of 100 gig, 400 gig per second communications and loan those out to systems that need to leave this PCI fabric, the CXL fabric to talk to systems outside of it. I mean, it's a, yeah. it's a complete change in the way that you would architect for networking as well. Yeah, and that's what I was what I was trying to get at with the fact that this is going to completely upend the way we think about a system or a server or a workload. And I really do think, you know, and we're probably looking at like ten years in the future if we're being honest. But every advantage that we got out of virtualization is now being made real in the data center. So what you'll end up with is a rack that is nothing but GPUs, a rack that is, to your point, nothing but NICs. And then you'll have the CXL over top of it, managing the servers, and I'm putting that in huge air quotes here, that only accesses those devices when they need them. And that's actually something that we can't do in VMware. For example, you can't dedicate a GPU in VMware without powering off the system. Right. In CXL, you'll be able to do that. That's bananas. That is bananas. B A N line? A. <laughs> I think <laughs> I'm lost now. Uh, and I, so, there's an irony here because you listed off all the vendors that are hot to trot on CXL, and there's one glaring exception it's VMware. They have regrettably been quiet about it. Yeah. Though one has to wonder if that has something to do with the Broadcom acquisition, because Broadcom is very involved with CXL. Yeah, I guess I guess time's going to tell on that one. But I think, honestly, if we went into the topic of why does VMware do, do what they do, it could be a whole other episode. Maybe several. <laughs> Dear Maybe Diary. <laughs> okay, I'll put that down in the list of future possible episodes. So, I mean, we're we're talking about ten years in the future, five years in the future. Where are we at today? What what can I buy today if I want it? Right. The first thing you need to make CXL work is a CPU that supports it, and they are coming real fast. So AMD has one, uh, their whole new line of processors was actually delayed a little bit to make sure that they got the CXL into it. Mm. And that comes out on November 10th. Okay. Two short days from now. Indeed. Intel's big, uh, big push into CXL is going to be the Sapphire Rapids line, which was supposed to come out around Christmas, but now is, quote, 2023. If you are in good with those vendors, though... You can get early access to the CPUs, and that's where some of the demos I was talking about came from is for some reason, Facebook and Meta were able to get early access. Weird, hmm. right? Facebook and Meta, if I remember correctly, Facebook was the founder of the OCP, or at least one of the founding members. I refuse to acknowledge that because it makes them sound good. <laughs> Both things can be true, Chris. <laughs> Um, and then on the ARM side, there's a company called Ampere One that is putting out a chip as well in 2023. Now, they're only going to cover 1.1 and 2.0. Okay. So we're still waiting for a whole new generation of processors that can handle 3.0. And that's one of the reasons it's going to take that long. So what I think in terms of products that already exist or products that will be available very, very fast, they're going to be very heavily in the 1.1 category. Right. So staying inside the frame for the moment. Right. And I still think that there's a tremendous amount of value there because like you were saying, in memory databases, for example, that RAM doesn't necessarily all have to be screaming bleeding edge. If you have a tiered system, you can get away with it and you can get a huge amount of value out of systems that you already have. 
So I anticipate that to to be the 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 clarion call for CXL for the foreseeable future, mm. which is probably the next calendar year. And then when the 2.0 chips come out and we actually have legitimate standards and products that allow switching, it's going to be when the game starts to really change. Now, the way we're talking about this, this is very much aimed at the data center. This is not oh, yeah. a consumer product. You might end up with a CPU that supports CXL on your desktop, but you don't need it. Correct. Yeah, because think about the numbers that we've been talking about. A terabyte of RAM, a 400 gigabyte NIC. Like these are not things that you need in your house, except for me, of course. And me as well, of course, yes. <laughs> Obviously. But yeah, yeah, I agree. I mean, in terms of what, what is it going to mean for the consumer? I really think it's going to be more about giving cloud vendors more flexibility and more interesting ways to put together infrastructure as a service solutions that are hosted on CXL. Kind of like what we were talking about with the spot instances. Right. Well, I mean, cloud is a bin packing game. And right now, the bin is the server. Right. How can we pack virtual machines onto that server tightly in a way that maximizes our revenue while minimizing our costs? And, CXL, and then, of course, charge double for I.O. Naturally. And CXL changes the bin packing process by making the bin more malleable <laughs> to a certain degree. <laughs> so sure. I, I, the metaphor might fall apart a little bit, but the, the point is like, it's going to shift the way that they can offer new things. Now, will they charge less for those things? Eh, That's adorable. I know, but it will add new and interesting capabilities. The The monster VMs <laughs> that they talk about today that support up to you know four terabytes of RAM, that's gonna be like an adorable little puppy. <laughs> compared to the, like the gargantuan servers that they're going to offer in the cloud for you know what if you wanted to buy it yourself would be a preposterous investment of money right no and i think that that really is that flexibility becomes an afterthought in the data center when you're building a virtual machine you can make it whatever size you want you can have three cpus if you want you'd be a lunatic but you could do it when you talk about the IaaS that's available from the cloud providers, it's much, much more rigid. Mm -hmm. You will get two CPUs, eight gigs of RAM. You want more? Okay. Four CPUs, 32 gigs of RAM. Like there's a middle ground there and they don't need, they don't go there now because of things like the math around NUMA and the, the ways that they cut up their instances. CXL is going to make it reasonable and actionable for them to make those virtual machines whatever size you want. Right. Five CPUs and 17 and a half gigs of RAM? Absolutely. Knock yourself out. <laughs> exactly. So yeah, you, you can really customize your instant sizes as opposed to going with what's on the menu. Right. Yeah, because a lot of the things that they push about memory is certain edge cases need massive amounts of memory, but not massive amounts of CPU. So for example, running a SAP HANA, oh, I'm sorry, SAP HANA, goodness, for God forfend. Um, it's about how much RAM you can throw at the problem. Right. In the cloud, that becomes not practical because then you're talking about like 128 CPU systems to get that amount of memory. You don't need that many CPUs. Right, right. It's not computationally intensive or that's not the, you don't need the two to be married to each other and have Correct. them walk in lockstep. Reminds me a lot of the problems that we ran into with uh, hyperconverged infrastructure and the fact mm -hmm. that everything had to scale linearly. Linearly, now that sort of upends that as well. So, what is what impact does this have for the HCI market as well? That's a good question, and I think it ends up solving the problem that hyperconverged tried to solve and has tried to solve with a certain amount of success. Because really, what it, in my mind, what it does is takes the concept of virtualization and removes the hypervisor. The hypervisor is now CXL. Mm, interesting. Okay. I see where you're going. Is, it, it does. You're still going to need something to broker the resource allocation. Yes. But the form that that broker takes is probably going to morph tremendously. I agree.
I don't know what necessarily it's going to morph into. I think it's too early to tell. There are products out there in the in the demo market, for example, that do CXL 2.0 memory management and dynamic assignment on the fly. That exists. That software was demonstrated at OCP. Hmm. So it already is – the ball is moving in that direction already. Are we finally going to see a new version of compute? By which I mean it's not a container, it's not a virtual machine, it's something else. I think that's that is an interesting thought experiment. I think what will end up happening is we stop thinking about compute in the same way in terms of, well, I need X amount of processor or X amount of gigahertz. And it's really going to be about how do we make this workload more efficient? Right. So when that happens and you have fully abstracted the hardware away, it's kind of like when you run like a function. In reality, what happens is a container gets spun up and the and your five lines of Python run in that container. Mm -hmm. But again, if you don't need that intermediary, then all you care about is your workload. All you care about is your function. If you don't need all the accoutrement of a container, if it could just spawn as a very secure thread, Right. That would be faster and more efficient. It would. And um, <laughs> the last thing, because when I when we were when I was talking about CXL with somebody else, we had also been talking about WebAssembly, and it made me think that the way that you compile and run programs with WebAssembly, and the protections and security that's built into that, makes CXL combined with Wasm, like a possible shift in how we run applications and workloads, because we're no longer tied to that container uh, abstraction. Right. I mean, again, I think what we're talking about now is like 15 years in the future, <laughs> yeah. but it is exciting to think about it. I will enjoy it while, uh, while sipping some sort of fruity drink from my veranda <laughs> on my private island. That we've made off Only of one? the Empire That's Chaos Lever. <laughs> the Chaos Lever Archipelago is going to be lit. Uh, lightning round? Lightning round. Surf the capitalism wave on a new browser, brah. <laughs> and through the shimmering waves. I just love how dismissive you are when you say brah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I fail to see the problem. Oh, and through the shimmering waves, I can see a vague shape on the horizon. Is it a hero? A villain? A fellow Saurian? No, it's yet another browser. But this time for the Enterprise. That's a capital E, people. The web browser is called Surf. S-U-R-F. Emerging from stealth this week with the backing of Octa Ventures, 11.2 Capital, and Mango Capital. The browser claims to be both zero trust and identity first and targeted at the enterprise user. The solution is a combination of a Chromium browser, so that part's not really new, running on the client side along with services from Cloudflare and Fastly to analyze and protect the client and Okta or HashiCorp Vault providing the identity component. The browser experience is managed through a centralized control plane that can push policies down to each user in the organization, adding the ability to remotely access internal applications, prevent actions in the browser like copy and paste, and prevent access to unauthorized sites that may be attempting a phishing attack. They claim the solution is revolutionary. But it sounds an awful lot like a few dozen other client solutions that leverage an agent to accomplish the same goal, or force all traffic through a SaaS service for inspection and detection. Surf has just emerged, and it's clear that Okta is backing them heavily with an eye to potentially acquire. Can they compete against a cluttered browser landscape and the complete dominance of Chrome? Or will they wipe out trying to shoot the internet tube? I don't know. Ned don't surf. The free speech world that Elon actually wants. Oh, it's actually just the freedom to spout woe is me bullshit from up on high with no accountability whatsoever. Sounds right. It's yet another 
Elon Bad Behavior Roundup. Featuring our old friend, what's the worst that could happen? Well, for 2022, we have an answer. It's Elon. Elon is the worst thing that could happen. And did. <laughs> Highlighting this report is Elon demanding special treatment for his own tweets. He blamed, quote, unnamed activists for the drop in ad revenue at Twitter. This was, of course, bullshit. And Twitter's automated birdwatch service tagged that tweet with context. In reality, it tagged Elon's tweet with facts that make it clear that advertisers are abandoning Twitter literally and exclusively because Elon is now in charge. Mysteriously, several hours later, the birdwatch addendum was absent from Elon's still bullshit tweet. Next up, Elon was super proud of the fact that he was going to immediately fire 50% of Twitter instead of, you know, I don't know, manning up and doing it. He's been forcing teams to work 80-hour weeks with some diehards literally tweeting photos of their coworkers asleep on the floor in their offices. This, unfortunately, is exactly the same behavior that made most of the best and brightest at Tesla jump ship. In this case, and in this state, Elon's move was transparently anti-worker and intended to force people to quit instead of being fired so that Twitter wouldn't have to pay unemployment. What happened instead is now Twitter's being sued. Good plan, Elon. Well done indeed. There was actually more that I could have added to this report, but I just can't anymore with this guy. It's been said before, and it will be said again. Christ, what an asshole. <laughs> I like everything we talked about last week was immediately <laughs> updated with a whole bunch of new information. So it's almost like uh, it's just a tsunami after tsunami of crap. And um, let's talk about something else. Cloudflare claims huge future growth. Analysts are underwhelmed. During Cloudflare's investor call last week, CEO of Cloudflare Matthew Prince claimed the company could reach a $5 billion annual run rate in the next five years based on their existing platforms and portfolio. Considering they are at a $1 billion run rate today, that's not a crazy thing to say, but it isn't going to be easy either. Cloudflare has made some major inroads into cloud computing by sitting at the last mile for many applications, aka at the edge. They've long provided CDN and DDoS protection, but more recently they've ventured into data processing with their workers platform and a durable storage service. Last year, they introduced their R2 object storage service to great fanfare, pointing out that they don't charge egress fees unlike some very named competitors. And yes, they called out AWS S3 hard, and rightly so. AWS egress charges are egregious. Next year, they will be launching their database platform creatively called D1. And they are working with partners like the aforementioned Surf browser to add security to distributed applications. Prince noted that they don't have to compete directly with the cloud giants. Instead, they can work in tandem with the clouds to create hybrid applications that have components distributed across the globe. As more workloads look to take advantage of the edge, I have, a little, I have little doubt that Cloudflare can hit their long-term targets. Investors are less bullish, which led to an 18% drop in their share price. Now I call that a bargain. Chaos Lever is not a registered financial entity and is expressly for entertainment purposes. Any commentary given on the platform should not be taken as investment advice. Consult your local CPA for tax implications. Void where prohibited, not legal in Utah, Colorado, and Mesopotamia. You may experience side effects such as shin splints, carpal tunnel syndrome, and a mild feeling of euphoria. If hemorrhaging, if ocular hemorrhaging occurs, discontinue use immediately and contact a physician, priest, and necromancer. Chaos Lever cannot be held liable for the actions of listeners, cats, or saurian invaders. See chaoslever.com for a full list of Ned's essential items for interstellar conquest. I feel like you could have said that faster. I'm not the Micro Machines guy. <laughs> SETI is still active and is, in fact, working harder than ever. Hmm. Technologists of a certain age will remember installing the SETI screensaver, yep. one that allowed data to be crunched while their computers were asleep. 
SETI, of course, stands for the Search for Extraterrestrial Intelligence. So we were literally using our computers to help look for ET. What a lot of those technologists might not know is that SETI is in fact still alive and well and doing a ton of valuable scientific research. Recently, SETI published a paper discussing the WOW signal, recorded in 1977. The WOW signal is one of the largest undefined and unrepeating recordings of radioscopic energy we have on file. This has often been jokingly dismissed as someone else's microwave, but be aware, that's a completely different, almost intelligent life in the universe event altogether. This paper focuses on radio because, frankly, it's the best we can do with the tech we can understand, and posits a new potential target for future intensive observations. This might not sound like a big deal, but you have to remember that the universe is incomprehensibly large. Having a place to start looking is actually a huge step forward. And to paraphrase a great philosopher, the truth is out there. We just have to find it. Solar winds. Remember them? The SEC sure does. Revenge is a dish best served cold. And justice waits for no one. Except I like hot food and justice is slow as molasses in January. Remember back in December 2020 when a massive breach on the SolarWinds build pipeline was discovered by security firm Mandiant, and the fact it had been going on since 2019, and it was Russian spies? Good times. In January of 2021, the stockholders sued SolarWinds basically for dereliction of duty. SolarWinds countered that the attack was highly sophisticated, and there's just no way they could have stopped such a cyber attack. Now, that was naturally horseshit, and the judge wasn't buying it either. The case moved forward, and rather than having a protracted battle, SolarWinds has decided to settle for $26 million. There's also a good chance that the SEC is getting involved, as they have sent a Wells notice to SolarWinds indicating that there may be an enforcement action against the company or individuals. Ouch. You might wonder what all this has done to their stock price. Well, just before the breach was discovered, they were trading at about $24 a share. The stock has tumbled all the way down to $9 a share, and I don't think we've found rock bottom. I know we often think that security doesn't matter to most companies in the long run. However, we may have found the exception in SolarWinds. Great job, everyone. USB thumb drives all around. You'll find them in the parking lot. <laughs> oh, God. I wrote this and I immediately regret it, but here we go. Do it. So I can't dance. I can't talk. Only thing about me is the way that I die. <clears throat> All my friends and fans, you're welcome and I'm sorry. <laughs> Science has a tricky way of making us all sad. <sighs> you remember the non-ending back and forths about cholesterol? Oh, yeah. Or if eggs are good for you or bad for you? Or when doctors recommended cigarettes as a cure for bad breath? <laughs> so that one goes back in time a little bit, but that's definitely a thing that happened. Wow. The latest terror dropped on us by Egghead PhDs claims to know how close you are to the grave by your gate. And not only that, they can give you an estimate based on a six-minute evaluation from an app you install on your phone. Now, on the one hand, this makes sense. A healthy person will walk robustly, probably without a limp, without slowing down. Sure. Sure. A sicker person will stutter, take breaks, and overall walk sad. Hmm. Fair. But yeesh. <laughs> The model seems to be quite accurate, with the first study showing a correct prediction of death with a 76% accuracy based on that six minutes of passive monitoring. So, yay for technology, I guess? Yay. Now we all have one more thing to dread on that inevitable walk to the mailbox in the morning. 
This has been Happy Thoughts by Ned Bellavance. Hey, I did not write that one. Don't pin that one on me, buddy. <laughs> uh, you have to wonder how big the sample size was for that. And really, if they were all, just all angry at their mothers-in-law. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Anyway, hey, thanks for listening or something. I guess you found it worthwhile enough if you made it all the way to the end. So congratulations to you, friend. You accomplished something today. Now you can sit on the couch, suck on a chili dog, and thank your Roomba for not killing you while you nap. You've earned it. And it's earned it. You can find me or Chris on Twitter at Ned1313 and at Hainer80, respectively, or follow the show at Chaos underscore Lever if that's the kind of thing you're into. Show notes are available at ChaosLever.com if you like reading things, which you shouldn't. Podcasts are better in every conceivable way. We'll be back next week to see what fresh hell is upon us. Ta-ta for now. For now. For now. For now? Now I want tater tots. Now I want bagels. <laughs>